morning. All right, it's time to go home. Um, let me get set up here. Um, but like Sam was saying, um, I used to serve as the creative pastor at Connection up until about two weeks ago. Um, so about a year and a half ago, um, really just felt the Lord was telling me and my family that it was uh, time to take a step of faith. Um, and so I have been designing uh, for about 10 years, and I'd had a little side business that was sort of kind of just put putting along, and about a year and a half ago, I felt like the Lord was telling us it's time to take a step out of being the creative pastor at Connection and into a part-time role at Connection, um, where I'm handled and managed the web and the app. If you don't know that we have an app, we have an app. You can download it on the uh, Android or the Apple Store. But uh, just kind of managing and overseeing that. And uh, up probably at this point, probably about a month, six weeks ago, um, I got a call uh, out of the blue from a guy um, who basically invited me to partner up, and I have since gone full-time with my business, taking another step of faith. Um, so that's kind of like a ESPN highlight reel of my story. Um, but enough about me. Uh, let's talk about Jesus. Um, I'm going to pray real quick, and then we can jump in. God, we just thank you for this morning. Um, Father, I just uh, I pray that words that were coming out of my mouth this morning would probably be the words that you want me to say, God, the, the words that um, we all need to hear. God, I think sometimes preachers, teachers, pastors, connect group leaders, you know, God, anybody in leadership can sometimes, um, in a not so subtle way, but sometimes a subtle way, exempt ourselves from the things that we're talking about. So, God, I pray this morning that we all would hear from your word today, God. We all would be changed by your word, myself included. So, God, I thank you for that. Thank you for these people here. God, I thank you for how much you love them. God, despite uh, their sin, Father, you chose to send your son to die on the cross for us. And, God, we uh, just lift you up this morning, God. In your name we pray. Amen. So, if you're new here... I'm not the campus pastor, Jeremy is, um, and if you are new here, I would hope that you would come back next week, because I think he's going to be here, and I think you're going to like him, because I do. Um, so, last week, we started a series called Counterfeit. This week, we're going to be concluding that series called Counterfeit, um, but last week, um, Jeremy was talking about the church in Ephesus, and about all the things that they had done. Um, if you were here, um, you read in Revelation 2, and it was talking about their deeds, all of their hard work, their perseverance, lack of tolerance for wickedness, their outing of false prophets and enduring hardships for his namesake without growing weary. But then God told them in Revelation 2, verse 4, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Now, if you're anything like me, that sounds pretty harsh considering the first 
two to three verses ahead of that, God was commending them or seemingly commending them for all the things that they had been doing. And that's kind of what we're conditioned to do in this life, right, is, is to do things. But yet God says, but yet you've forgotten your first love or you've forgotten the motivation for why you do what you do. But most of us might look at it and think, oh man, you know, God, the Bible, like he's pretty... He's pretty harsh. He's a taskmaster. Those people had done all those things for all of those years, and then God says, nope, not good enough. You did it for the wrong reasons. But the reality we all have to come to grips with is this. God isn't concerned about what we do. He's concerned about why we do it. So we can read that in 1 Samuel 16 where God said he doesn't look at man's actions, but he looks at his heart. And so the motivation is the key to why we do what we do anyway. And here's why. The reason why you read your Bible is because you want to know more about God so that you can then know God, then you're going to read your Bible. Would you agree? Do you see how the action is informed by the motivation? Take this for example. How many of us have ever tried to gain motivation by doing something? Say a diet and going to the gym and doing something like that. We, we try to do these things, hoping that maybe then we'll gain the motivation to then do them, but very rarely, if ever, it works out. If you've figured out how to do that, somebody write a book, I'll buy it. You'll probably make a lot of money. But all of that to say, I think the Ephesians had believed a lie that we still believe today. And it's that we don't need God. Sounds kind of strange, especially considering we were just talking about, you know, the, the Ephesians saying that, you know, or God telling the Ephesians that they had done all these things for him and all this kind of stuff. But let me explain. If you want to turn to your Bibles in Genesis chapter 3, that's where we're going to be today. And I'll read real quick. From there. So while you're turning, we'll be at Ephesians 3, 1, verse 5. I'll go ahead and start reading it. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So I want you to pay close attention to one phrase at the tail end of verse 5. And it says, and you will be like God. This has always been Satan's M.O. If you don't know much about Satan prior to his appearance in Genesis, then most commonly again in the wilderness as he was tempting Jesus, let's take a quick trip over to Isaiah 14. So you turn there. It's a little past the middle of your Bible. In verse 12 through 14, this is the prophet Isaiah. And he's talking 
to the king of Babylon. But in this passage, it's also what's called an allusion to Satan and his fall. Verse 12, it says, how, have you, how you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will send to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. Pay attention to this one. This is verse 14. It says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So when we look at the fall of Satan, it was his pride, it was his arrogance, it was his selfishness, really, that led to him being cast out of heaven. But yet it's the same thing that he tells Eve in the garden. He says, you will be like God. And that's the reason why we're in the state that we are in today. And it sounds awfully familiar and similar to the phrase the serpent used in the garden, doesn't it? The Bible tells us in John 10.10 10, that the thief who's Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That thief is Satan, and I believe it was his intent in the garden to destroy God's design by planting this thought in their minds. You don't need God because you can be like God. And if you're just like God, knowing everything that he knows, why do you need him? That thought line of selfishness and pride is what ultimately separated them and us from God in the garden and why we find it so hard to make time to invest in a relationship with God. We live in a world that's influenced by that same thought, though I don't know if many of us would even jump that far to say, if I, ha if I get this, if I have this, if I do this, or if I know this, then I'll be like God. I'd say that instead many of us say, if I can get this new car, if I can get this new house, I'll be happier. I'll be satisfied. Or if I can know this, then maybe this person will hear me and think more highly of me because of how smart I am. Whatever the case may be for you, if you'll take a second and think about it and how everything's phrased, it's pretty telling. If I, if I, if I, it's all about me. And when everything's about me, it's not about God. And I've attempted to overthrow God from his place as God by making my own self my own God. But that's the world we live in, right? It's the Burger King drive through mentality that says, I want it way, my way now. And if it doesn't come how we want it, when we want it, chances are we'll take it into our own hands and do it ourselves. The struggle of self-dependence is something we all fight, myself included. But it's not the way God intended for us to be. He never intended for us to be self-reliant and independent. He created us for a relationship with Him, dependence on Him. We can look at the garden to see His original intent for us, to walk among us face to face with no sin, sadness, death, or tears. No worries about who's driving what, how big your house is or isn't, if you're smart enough, good enough, pretty enough, or strong enough. His design was for us to be just with him. It's kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? That's because the sin in the garden didn't just take something away from us. It marred and distorted everything going forward, too. 
So if we want to flip back over to Genesis 3, we'll pick back up in verse 14 and kind of show what changed after Eve and Adam ate that fruit. So verse 14, it says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children and your desire... Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So that's not at all what the garden was like. That's what happened after that sin. And so that's the world we live in now, is that it's broken, it's marred, it's distorted. It's not at all what God had intended. But the hope of it all is that even though sin entered the world and distorted and broke everything, God still had a plan for us to make it right. But before we get there, let's talk about what happened and the effects of sin beyond just what we just read. So now that we've been separated from God, which is what happened um, after they left the garden in verse 24, it says, And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden a cherubim, which is a guardian angel, with a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Three main things I want you to, if you, if you take notes, take it. If you take mental notes, go for that too. But three things were distorted that day and, and, and are still distorted today. Our view of God, our view of ourselves, and our view of others, all are currently distorted. They're not what God intended them to be. Our view of God has clearly shifted from that of Adam and Eve prior to their sin and banishment from the garden. I mean, think about it. Verse 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That was the kind of relationship that they had with God, that Adam and Eve had with God, is that they were able to walk in the garden, look at him face to face, talk with him, be with him, and everything was right. But if we... Skip over in the Bible a couple chapters to Exodus 33. This is what God is telling Moses. But you cannot see my face because no one can see me and live. That's a pretty far away distance from what it used to be in the garden when Adam and Eve could just talk and commune with God. And now we're in this position where we can't even look at him because we'll die. And in, in Exodus 33, God says, you can't look at me in my face, but what you can do is see my backside. And then from that point, Moses came down the mountain and he was glowing for the rest of his life because he had been in the presence of God 
and it had affected him that much. But that's a huge gap. It's a huge distance between what it was in the garden to what it is now. We were eternally separated, as in we can't go back. Don't care if we passed go a thousand times. There's a warrior of light with a giant sword guarding the garden, and we're not getting back in. That's the reality we live in. The effects of sin can't be undone, but one day they will be removed. And that's the hope we cling to as followers of Jesus, that one day our view of God, ourselves and others, will be righted forever, and there will be no more tears, sadness, death, or sin. And I don't know about you, but given the world that we live in today, that sounds pretty sweet. So how is our view of God distorted? A.W. Tozier said, What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. If you've been in church for longer than a few weeks, most likely you've heard God referred to as our Father. The reality for all of us is that more often than not, the way we view God is informed by the way we've experienced authority figures in our lives. Whether that be your boss, a spouse, a parent, the police, the president, or anywhere and anyone in between. The reason why is that it's easier to compare what we do know than what we don't because, well, we don't know what we don't know. In light of all that, I'll talk about three camps I've experienced when it comes to our view of God. Some of us will view him as a distant dictator, a God who sits on a throne, commands us to do this and do, to do that, and doesn't care to interact with us in our day-to-day -day lives, much like any of the kings we've seen depicted on movies or television. Some of us see him as a fatherly figure, a God who cares deeply about big things and the small things in our own personal lives. But I'd say most of us are somewhere in between, mostly because we don't value knowing him enough to figure out where we are on the spectrum, and we don't value him enough because we don't think we need him. The problem with all of these viewpoints is that they are all distorted because we're basing them off of our experiences and not scripture. We're basing them off of people we know or people we've come into contact with outside of scripture. So how is our view of ourselves distorted? We're taught by society, which is our experience, our parents, our friends, movies and television, etc., to be self-reliant. We've bought into the lie that we can do it on our own. There's literally thousands and thousands of books, even Christian-themed ones, outlining how to become a better father, mother, husband, wife, friend, co-worker, boss, business person, etc. You fill in the blank. We bought into the same lie that Eve did in the garden. But it's also like this double-edged sword for some of us. Some of us don't think we can do it on our own. That because we're not good enough for whatever reason. And life has taught us that we're not good enough, but we'll come to God asking for help. And when he tells us or shows us what to do, we don't want to do it because it's too hard. It'll cost me too much, or frankly, because we don't believe him in the first place. So it's as if we come to God and we're like, I need your help. And then when God says, here's how you can overcome this, or here's how you can move past this, we're like, nah, it doesn't work. That doesn't line up with what I believe or it doesn't suit my preference. So we'll come to God wanting something and when he gives us something and it's not what we want, we reject it and walk away. 
We've placed a much greater importance on ourselves than we have of God. And all of that stems from the desire, whether we recognize it or not, to be like God. So how, are, how is our view of others distorted? When we're so consumed with ourselves, it's hard to think of anyone else, much less wanting to offer them something we really don't have. It's hard to tell other people about Jesus when our situations and circumstances haven't changed or when they're not as we'd hoped they'd be. It's hard to tell people about Jesus when we base his character and nature solely on the outcome of what we think should happen. When we're so consumed with ourselves, we can't see other people how God sees them. We'll see them as competition, something or somebody that we should beat, or something that we can't ever live up to. We spin our wheels constantly comparing ourselves to them because we're not satisfied with who we are in Christ. All of this distorted reality stems from the fact that we've shifted the focus from God being the beginning and end to us being to the beginning and end. I remember how I remember hearing at one point we thought the earth was at the center of the universe. Did you guys learn that in school? The notion still hasn't changed, even if we've realized that the earth isn't the center of the universe. We all know that one person, or then multiple people, who just feel like they are the center of the universe, and it's kind of annoying sometimes. But in a lot of ways, that's us too, especially when it comes to God. So what's the right way to look at all of this? So in 1 John 4, verse 8, it says that God is love. So this was something that Brandon and I were talking about, Brandon's your senior pastor in Statesburg campus, um, we're talking about a couple weeks ago, actually probably about a month ago, and when he was sharing all of this with me, it was kind of revolutionary, because what I think that we've done in church, but also as people, is like what I've talked about, we've taken the focus off of God and we've put it on ourselves. And so 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. 1 John 4, 19 says that we love because he first loved us. And I don't think that we actually grasp the entirety of the word love if we don't know God. And the reason why is that God is the source and the author of love. Love's also a choice. It's not a feeling. And the Bible says in 1 John 4, 19, that we love because he first loved us. So if we look at that scripture, we can determine that we can't actually love anything if we haven't received his love first, which is the broken reality that we live in. And so we have to be able to receive God's love in order to first love ourselves and then to be able to love anybody else. And if we shift over to Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, it says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the saints to grasp how wide, long, and high, and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all fullness of God. And so all of this is to say 
that when we realize the depth of our sin and the width, length, and height of God's love for us, it changes everything. Because we can't understand the gap between the garden and now, between perfection and our sin, if we first don't understand God's love for us. Because the Bible talks about it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not our knowledge of sin. It's not our, um, it's not our good works. It's, his, it's just purely his kindness, and it's his love for us. And so it changes the way that we see God. He goes from being a distant dictator to a loving father. It changes the way we see ourselves. And I want to read to you some of the things that the Bible talks about who we are. Because we live in a society and in a world, like we've already talked about, that tells us who we should be in advertising and TV and movies. Ladies, I have two daughters. I have a wife and three kids. Um, and that's one of the things that my wife, Bethany, and I specifically um, are very intentional on is telling our daughters specifically who they are in Jesus. And it doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter how well they do. Um, I tell, we tell our son this as well, but I feel like there is such an attack on, on women within specifically the advertising and marketing industry, which is just where I'm at, that they're mark, they're, we're constantly marketed to, to you, you've got to be thinner, you've got to have bigger this or smaller this and, and all of these things. But, but the reality is that Scripture doesn't say anything about the way we look or, or, or what, what we do. It talks about our heart. I just wanted to read some of these things. Um, this is actually the book. It's called A Better Story. Brandon, our senior pastor, wrote it. Um, and he had compiled a lot of the sayings that the Bible talks about we are when we're in Christ. So I just want you to listen to these things and allow it to kind of soak into your heart so that hopefully when you leave today, at least one of these will come to mind and you can... Ask God to show you more about it. So in Christ, uh, we are a new creation. In Christ, I can trust God to continue to work in me. In Christ, I am God's handiwork. In Christ, I am good enough because of the work of Christ. In Christ, I have peace with God. I am shown love through the work of the cross. I am forgiven. God wants to use me. God favors me. I have the gift of salvation. I have everything I need. I am equipped. I am gifted. I am strong. I can do anything. I have a spirit of love, power, and self-control. I have no fear. I have a future. I do not have to worry. I do not have to be afraid. I am treasured. I am chosen. I am called out of darkness. I am accepted. I am wonderfully made. I am a child of God. I am loved. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. God is bigger than my condemnation. I have overcome the world. I am free. 
I am gifted, equipped, and competent. I am free from sin and condemnation, and I have an eternal purpose. So those are the things that the Bible say, the Bible says that we are when we're in Christ. And when we realize the depth of our sin and we realize the greatness of his love, it also changes the way that we see others. Because when we're satisfied in God's love for us, we can then have a right view of everybody else. Because we're full and complete, lacking nothing. It's really only then that we can have anything to give anyone else. We can't truly love someone the way Jesus does if we haven't first realized his love for us. Love is a choice, not a feeling. We talked about that earlier. We've all heard that before. We, we've all heard that before, but we can't really understand it until we understand the situation Jesus went through in the second garden. Jesus chose to obey his Father and love us by sacrificing his own life to save ours. And that's the love that changes everything. So, when we look at the whole of Scripture, I want us to ask four questions to help us walk with God in Scripture. So if you take notes, write these down. First question, who is God? And we're looking at Genesis to Revelation. Who is God in the Bible? The second question, who am I? The third, what has God done? And the fourth, who have I become? So when we're reading scripture, we can see who God is, his nature, his character, how good, perfect, right, holy he is. And then when we look at scripture too, we can see who we are, specifically apart from Christ, that we're not like God. We're sinful, we're incomplete, unholy but then we can look at scripture and see what God has done through Jesus and the cross that he's reconciled all of us myself included to him by giving me Jesus's righteousness and then based off of who God is who I was and what God has done who I've become is all of the things that we just read in this book all of those different I am statements that are found in this book called A Better Story, but are also in the Bible, it's that my identity isn't in my circumstance, isn't in my experience. It's in Scripture, and it's in Christ. And when we see the gap that God has bridged through answering these four questions, we should never leave reading Scripture without being in awe of God and his love that reconciled us to him. So let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21 for how that changes us and what that has to say for us. So 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. For it says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him 
who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed us to the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that's the whole message of the Bible, is that reconciliation through faith in Christ. We're to be reconciled to God, to my true identity, who Jesus says I am, not who the world says I am, not who my mama said I was, not who my daddy said I was, or your friends, or the kind of car you drive, or the house you live in, or any of that stuff. We're, we're to be reconciled to who he says we are. And I really believe that if we can all grasp a hold of that, of who we are in Jesus, everything changes. And then we are also to then be reconciled in a right relationship with others. It all starts and ends with God and his love. All scripture points to this because all scripture points to Jesus and that was his purpose. Guys, as I was praying this week about what God would have me talk about today. I just really felt like he wanted me to tell you that he loves you for who you are right now, not for who you're to become, not for who you will be, not for who you were, but who you are right now, sitting in this room or later on when people are listening online, that he loves you, that it's not about what you've done, what you do or what you will do, but that he loves you. I think for me, I have a hard time often, if I'm being honest, about accepting God's love because a lot of what I shared today in being self-reliant is the thing that I struggle with the most. For whatever reason, there's probably a myriad of reasons why I feel the need to do it myself, but most of it is because I don't trust God. Most of it is because I trust myself more than I trust God. Even though I know that I can't do it. And so like we were talking about that double-edged sword where we come to God and we ask for his help and but then we don't like the help that we get. And so I, for me, I won't put you in that seat. I'll put myself in that seat. I'll go to God and I'll say, I want you to do, do it this way. 
And then when he doesn't do it that way, I get mad and go do it that way myself. And I don't know if you are like me, but that's something that I struggle with a lot. I shared earlier about this little journey that I've been on for probably the past year and a half, uh, being part-time at the church. And um, I was sharing with the prayer team um, earlier that for probably the past six months, I had been praying, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? You want me to do you want me to go back to the church full-time? Do you want me to stay one foot in, one foot out? Do you want me to go and start this business full-time? And my prayer was, God, would you do it? Because I don't want any part in it. Because if I have a part in it, I'm going to take credit for it. If I have a hand in it, I'm going to take credit for it. So I want you to do it. And that was a huge surrender for me because for the past 10 years, I've been trying to earn it. And we talked about that last week where they had forgotten and forsaken their first love. The Ephesians in Revelation had forgotten their first love. And we read out of Ephesians in Ephesians uh, 3 when we were reading earlier. Paul's writing to him. And he says, And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all fullness of God. I don't think that it's any coincidence that Paul's encouraging them in this moment to grasp a hold of the love of God. And then in Revelation, last week we're looking at how they've forsaken that first love. And guys, I'm just gonna be, I'm just gonna be honest, like that's something that I fall victim to a lot, is forgetting the reason why I do the things that I do. And I know in a room full of people like this, I'm not alone. And so my, my plea to you this morning, my, encouragement to you this morning is to just be with God. Just rest in the fact that He loves you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. And even if you did, it's not good enough. That's why He sent Jesus. And so what that does is that relieves all of the pressure. It relieves all of the effort that we try to to do to earn God's love. And it takes the focus off of us and puts it onto Him where it rightly belongs in the first place. And it's when we can mentally and spiritually place God back on the throne of our lives rather than placing ourselves on the throne that we'll be able to walk more freely, that we'll be able to walk more boldly, and that we'll be able to take steps of faith without fear because we've put, we've taken ourselves off the throne. And so that's my plea to you this morning. I know Jeremy usually preaches like an hour and 30 minutes or something like that, but we're gonna get out of here early. Um, but like I was saying, when I was praying this week, I just, I really felt like God just wanted me to tell you that he loves you. And I hope that today 
when you leave, that you allow that to sink into your heart and allow it to change you. So with that, I'm gonna pray. Jesus, we thank you for today. God, I thank you that you love us, Father, that you love us so much that you sent your son, Jesus, to us to die on a cross, to take our place, to take the penalty that we deserved. Jesus, I pray that in confidence, God, that your word says that when your word is spoken and read, God, it never returns void. So I pray this morning, God, that your word doesn't return void. God, that it pierces and penetrates the hearts of all of us. Jesus, that you would uh, be with us today. God, be with us this weekend. And Father, I pray that, that your love would sink deep into our hearts. God, it would begin to disturb and disrupt this pattern of selfishness that we all fall victim to. And God, that you would Father, just continue to speak to our hearts about how much you love us. We love you. In your name we pray.